Hey there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. (sighs) I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About cavemen. About lustrous furs. Way more about time travel than I expected it to be about when we first started this project. <laughs> Super true. About dried meats. Jerkies and jerkin. Uh, about the ruthlessness of the male perspective. About first person perspective. About giving birth. Ugh. <laughs> About finding your crew, whatever that may mean to you. About bad dads. Not about saber-toothed tigers, so don't expect it. Very disappointing. Also really not about the domestication of animals in any sense. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. And in fact, this week's episode is about all of us. Because we are talking about a prehistorical romance. Is that what it's called? Technically. Technically it is. This week, we are discussing Transcendence by Shay Savage. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to acknowledge some of the comments that we received about our last book um, before we kicked off Classic. So let's talk about, first of all, some of the comments we received on Instagram about the experience of reading The Madness of Lord Ian McKenzie. Okay. Nicole talked about The Madness of Lord Ian McKenzie, and she said one of the frustrating aspects of the book for her was the focus on the emotional trauma of Lord Ian McKenzie, and that the book was much darker than she expected it to be, Mm. which I thought was really interesting. And she also said she was interested in the idea of like Lord Ian McKenzie having OCD, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting and not something that I had considered. And I also think that like focus on his emotional trauma was one of the things that maybe got like a little dicey for me when I was reading it. I agree. All right. Cece reads romance. Hi, Cece. Talked about reading Lord Ian in 2017 and said Mm. that it felt revolutionary at that time because it was the first and only romance that explicitly depicted a protagonist on the autism spectrum. And she also ponders if it isn't an inheritor of Flowers from the Storm, which is something we talked about. Having like a neuro non-typical hero has been going on for a really long time. Yeah, I think so. I think it is right to call it an inheritor. Yeah, I think that's all anyone said to us about Lord Ian McKenzie. So a lot of interesting thoughts. We have really smart, cool listeners is what this exercise has reminded me. We do. We're really lucky. I think we should be a little bit more organized than last week. Do you want to start by reading the back of the book, Isabel? You ready? Are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this, Jelly. Jelly, we accidentally discovered by boiling (laughs) animal bones for too long. How did we boil? Very slowly. The slowly. It's said that women and men are from two different planets when it comes to communication. But how can they overcome the obstacles of prehistoric times when one of them simply doesn't have the ability to comprehend language? Ed. Ed is spelled E-H-D. Ed's a caveman living on his own in a harsh wilderness. He's strong and intelligent, but completely alone. When he finds a beautiful young woman in his pit trap, it's obvious to him that she is meant to be his mate. He doesn't know where she came from. She's wearing some pretty odd clothing and she makes a lot of noises with her mouth that give him a headache. Still, he's determined to fulfill his purpose in life, provide for her, protect her and put a baby in her. Oh, man. How did I forget about that? 
I don't know. We need to talk about it, though. Elizabeth doesn't know where she is or exactly how she got there. She's confused and distressed by her predicament, and there's a caveman hauling her back to his cave home. She's not at all interested in Ed's primitive advances, and she can't seem to get him to listen. No matter what she tries, getting her point across to this primitive but beautiful man is a constant and often hilarious struggle. I don't know who wrote that, but no. With only each other for company, they must rely on one another to fight the dangers of the wild and prepare for the winter months as they struggle to coexist. Theirs becomes a love story that transcends language and time. Transcendence. That's the name of the book. Morgan, I'd like to actually start kind of where we started with our last week's episode with like my experience of like reading it, if that's okay with you. Yes, I think we should start there with your experience of reading it. If you feel strongly about it. I have a strong feeling about it because it involves us and our relationship. Oh, no. Okay, go. So you're like, we should do this for the podcast. And I was like, okay. And I start reading it in the days leading up to the election and then in the immediate aftermath. And my first thought was, why am I reading breeder porn? And then I was like, <laughs> I know that this is a thing. Yes, breeder porn. <laughs> I put that in my notes. Breeder porn. And so like... The more he said, I have to put a baby in her, I have to put a baby in her, the more I was like, this is 100% that porn thing. And then I did the thing where I'm like, am I remembering this right? Because like rabbit hole of like, you know, incognito Google search of porn. And then like, I did the bad thing where I looked breeder porn up. You watched breeder porn? I didn't watch. Listen, listen, listen. Hold on. Listeners, listeners, context. Isabeau and I have a relationship with someone who has a relationship with someone who has a relationship with someone who has engaged in coitus with a young man who has a breeder fetish. And via separate conversations, we received this knowledge that breeder porn exists. And what I ended up doing is doing a Google Scholar search. Mm, mm. Excuse me while I adjust my mortar board. And uh, that was my first pathway of investigation. Isabeau went to RedTube. I did. And I have to say, this makes sense to me. But if you only know us through the podcast, perhaps that surprises you. Indeed. (laughs) It's such a weird fucking space. Here's what I will say about the very brief breeder gifts of porn I subjected myself to. There are gifts? Of course there are gifts. Well, I will tell you, the Google Scholar articles led me to believe that this is a story. It is. It's a sex story. I don't think it could be captured. Like, it has so much to do with, like, external to the sex act anxieties that I did not think it could be captured in a GIF. Not only is it in a GIF, but the GIF has, like, literal text. What does the GIF say? Oops, you're pregnant. No, it's like, put a baby (laughs) in her. It's this exact stuff. What if this is all runoff from transcendence? And transcendence, we don't realize this, but it is as much in the cultural collective unconscious now as like Fifty Shades of Grey. Do you know when this book came out? When? 2014. It's had plenty of time to take root. Yeah, I have like literally nothing to like countervail that argument. Like it's entirely possible. Everything on the breeder gifts. And I even hate saying it. It's so gross. Breeder gifts. Also, breeder is a slur against straights that I think should be used more often. (laughs) Agreed. Super hard agree on that one. Way better than like whatever. It's like a version of forced sex that's worse because it has like a forever outcome with a child like everything about that space was really heinous to me and so like the idea that this is like sexually pleasing and like the book is making it out to be I was like this is not pleasing to me I don't want to yuck your yums if this is something that you're into but I find it very anxiety inducing and like two shades away from rape beep beep pull up to the bumper because I've got some information for you. Okay. Via an article that is definitely from a peer-reviewed journal. BuzzFeed? Breeder. (laughs) Those are my peers. What type of breeder porn are you? (laughs) Choose 10 sandwiches, two coffees, and one pair of slippers. (laughs) We'll let you know which form of anxiety makes you splooge. (laughs) Biological anxiety makes you splooge. So the theory is that breeder... Ism 
is born of the anxiety that like you got someone pregnant and you didn't want to get them pregnant and that it's pleasurable because it brings back the original dangerous aspect of sex, which is interesting to think about because we've had condoms for so long. But that edge of like this one moment of ecstasy could mean that I have to start a college account. But like, it feels so dude-centered. Oh, of course, of course. It's all them. Yeah, it's like the anxieties you're going to start a fucking college account versus like have your body like ripped open and now you have to like spend some of your holidays with this yahoo that you only met once. Can you imagine having someone like flopping around on top of you and they're just like, I'm going to get you pregnant. I'm going to get you pregnant. (laughs) Even as somebody who's like considering the possibility of becoming a parent, if literally my sexual partner said that to me, I'm like, no. That's it. That's dismount, dismount, sir. Yep. <laughs> that's the ball game. I'm gonna go take a shower and watch Queer Eye for a while. Like that's just not at all. Also, like to not talk about breeder porn, although I think <laughs> that it has a small foothold in transcendence by Shay Savage. But I think whenever you say it's like not that far from rape. I think Mm -hmm. that's interesting. I don't know how I feel about that, but I think this might be an inroad into that. And that whenever our main characters are having sex, I almost said making love. Having sex. You know, whatever. Any term will do. Mm. When they're porking. (laughs) Can they pork? They don't have pigs. They only have warthogs. They're in the pork family. They're definitely porking. When they pre-hipork prehistoric pork. He doesn't say like, I'm going to have sex with my mate. He says like, I'm going to try to put a baby in my mate. Now they have other kinds of sex. They have oral sex. They have manual sex, hand jobs, mutual masturbation. They 69. They 69. Before the number even existed. And he doesn't frame that as trying to put a baby in her, but he does every time they have penetrative sex, he describes it as like, I want to try to put a baby in my mate. Earlier this morning, I tried to put a baby in my mate. And it's really interesting because that reframe sexuality is a biological imperative, which we understand sexuality has never really been just a biological imperative. We know this because primates that are alive and well today will just mutually masturbate and have non-reproductive homosexual sex and that they will perform oral sex, right? Chimps and things like that. And this book also acknowledges that like, he's like, whoa, mouths? You know, like he's shocked by that, but he's still like very into it, right? Our heroine is obviously a time traveler from, I assume, 1987 because she's wearing Jordache jeans, we eventually discover. We do discover that in like Victoria's Secret pink underwear. Yeah, even though she's like 15. (laughs) It's strange to me that the only way the book could think about how this prehistoric male would think about sex is as reproductive when all this time, like he's talked about masturbating alone, he's performed oral sex and had oral sex performed on him, and he's still framing it as trying to put a baby in my mate. And it just seems like if there is a biological imperative, it's orgasm rather than the result thereof. Like, at least the legible part of it. It's also insane to me that this person who, like, doesn't have language or even the capacity for language, which is a whole thing, as, like, for so long in, like, medieval history, many societies in medieval times had language, obviously, and other kinds of society, and understood that sex was related to baby making, but didn't understand exactly how that shit worked. Oh my God, the Puritans in the early Americas, the white people who came over here to practice religious freedom, one of the reasons they were persecuted is that they believed you could not conceive unless the woman also had an orgasm at some point during sex. And people in England thought that that was perverse. Yeah. And whenever they came over to the United States, we have all of these like pieces of writing about like, this is a clitoris. You should stimulate that to help your wife have an orgasm so that you conceive. If she doesn't have an orgasm, you might as well be masturbating and you will go to hell, which is the exactly the level of stakes I think men should bring to sex with women. I think so too. I'm glad that you said that. I'm, I'm really pleased that you said that. Eternal damnation. Yeah, forever. Figure your shit out. Figure her shit out. Like bring that level of godly fear to whether <laughs> or not you're pleasing your partner for fuck's sake but like you know it's not correct but it is an <laughs> understanding that people had before electricity yeah exactly thank you 
But like, I wasn't 100% sure that this humanoid person who has been without his tribe for a number of years, like the book assumed that he knew how babies were made. And I was like, I'm not prepared for that assumption to be correct. Show your work. Well, this actually gestures towards something that I was thinking that we're thinking about a lot when we talk about historical romance. And it was made very clear for me by this book. We're thinking about how history works and how we get to where we are today. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, though, is that (laughs) there's so much like concrete historical record for things like the Regency period, for example. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas whenever we talk about something like the prehistoric era, Mm -hmm. it's all just like vague gestures. I fell down a YouTube hole of National Geographic videos and things speculating about what it was like in the prehistoric world. And, you know, for a long time, we understood ourselves as descendants of Homo sapiens and Homo sapiens alone. And now we know that we actually have a lot of Neanderthal DNA, or not a lot, but we have Neanderthal DNA, which means there was crossbreeding. Totally. Also, white people have more of it than others because lactose tolerance is something that we get from our Neanderthal ancestors. Neanderthals were located in the same general area where this book is set, which I think is... I think it said Hungary, but it's definitely in like either the Balkans or the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. As we understand it today. But also they just found a new species of humanoid that we likely could have interbred with and probably did in Spain. And by we, I mean Homo sapiens, Mm -hmm. which is the African continent based thing that we look the most like today and we function the most like or like our skulls are the most similar that's the other thing i found out when i was doing this that they found a pit full of like this early humanoid that was very small they found like a lot of their bones along with like animal bones and they were like wow they were hunting and eating meat which means they probably had fire (laughs) and they were like actually there's like a lot of humanoid teeth marks on this baby skull oh we were eating each other this isn't actually proof that these small humans were able to hunt and cook food. It's that they were also prey for other humans. So sometimes we ate our fellow like species and sometimes we procreated with them. Yeah, that seems right. But actually all of that is speculation. (laughs) And there's no way to know. And I think like one of the pleasures of this particular book is not unlike the pleasures of the Clan of the Cave Bear, Valley of the Horses, Land of the Mammoth People for insane doorstopper texts from the late 70s, early 80s, wherein we are introduced to a homo sapien young girl whose tribe is murdered by a tribe of Neanderthals. And then she's raised by the Neanderthals. And then she's ostracized by the end of the clan of the cave bear and has to go to the Valley of the Horses, where she meets another homo sapien man, John Delar, who has a magic dick. And like the whole Valley of the Horses, which Isabel read at the tender age of 14, which was probably too young for my prehistory sex talk because John Delar's magic dick <laughs> transcends language and time. What do you mean? I mean, if you haven't read these books, which I kind of think we might. I did read Clan of the Cave Bear. This is funny. Did you ever go on family vacation to Van Buren, Missouri? Not to Van Buren, Missouri, no. I discovered the book, The Clan of the Cave Bear, in a cabin my family rented in Van Buren, (laughs) Missouri. (laughs) That's how I read it, which is a small, sleepy river town with many, many Confederate flags and one copy, at least, of Clan of the Cave Bear. At least. And I read it on that vacation. Yeah. But no, I don't know about this Valley of the Horses hoopla. It's the sequel where she meets John Delar. I just want you to give me the quickest, simplest explanation of his magical penis. John Delar is searching for a mate. This is not narrow it down to his penis. What does his penis do? No, it's because what does he want? Kill your darlings, Isabel. What does he want and what does his dick do? That's like you. Okay. Okay, what does he want? John Delar wants a virgin who is a carnal goddess. Don't we all? <laughs> and he can't find him, and it sucks to have sex with virgins if they start carrying those at the Whole Foods. Huh? And he doesn't want to have sex with virgins because they always cry and it sucks, and there's no way to make it pleasurable for them, even if he goes down on them. So why does he want a virgin? <laughs> I don't know. It's like a thing in the book that he wants. 
He's like, I wish I had a virgin, but like a slutty one. <laughs> That's like his whole thing. One that has already been breached, I even think is like the language of that. Anyway, he meets our heroine in a valley of the horses. Mm-hmm. From riding horses. What? <laughs> That's right. And she's only ever had sex with Neanderthals, so it was always rape. And so John Delar is all about consent and making her feel good. And she has the carnality of a virginal goddess because she doesn't know how to have sex or do any of the things. And so they just have sex in her cave. And she's still technically a virgin because Neanderthals don't count. Neanderthals. Exactly. And so they domesticate horses. She has a lion cub that she raises. And then they like live their lives with John Delar's magic dick. She always comes no matter what. Oh, that's why it's magic. Mm-hmm. Okay, because you said transcended time. And language, because she doesn't have language, but John Delar does. So then he teaches her how to talk by using his dick. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I'm glad you brought this up because I did put out a call for input on our Instagram. And Laura B. Good on Instagram commented, I am imagining transcendence to be clan of the cave bear meets outlander. Please confirm or deny. I will confirm it is more like Clan of the Cave Bear than Outlander. It's very isolated, yeah. There's no society. And honestly, in that way, it's much more like Valley of the Horses than Clan of the Cave Bear, because at least there she's living with the clan. In Valley of the Horses, she's alone for the first half of the book until John Delar shows up. Here are some of the comments about Transcendence, which we're discussing today. Amy, she read Transcendence. She got a sample as a joke and then ended up reading the whole thing in one night, which I believe happened. That is absolutely a normal reaction. Yeah. But she pointed out something that I also experienced, which is there is like an epilogue kind of or the final chapter where we discover Beth, B-E-H or Elizabeth's backstory. It turns out she was a 15 year old on a field trip to the Natural History Museum when she got sent back in time when she checked in on her dad's office. Wow. Yeah, gross. Amy said she would be interested in revisiting the book with that in mind. And she actually read Elizabeth's story, but felt like it was kind of boring because it's really just retreading the same thing Mm. as Transcendence itself. Cece reads Romance felt like Transcendence was a bit of a throwback using time travelers. And she actually, this is a really interesting question because she talks about how primitive living love stories are having a bit of a moment right now. Hmm. And indeed, I found Transcendence, even though it's been out for several years, I found it on Book YouTube. YouTube, which came out like not too long ago is like a wrap up of things I've read in 2019 or something. And she also points out Ruby Dixon's Ice Planet Barbarians, one of the best series titles in the game. That is true. And she says, I have a lot of questions about why of all times that's appealing right now. Yeah, seriously. Also a question I asked myself. And what I think is really interesting is that it's a historical era with so little historical record that I think it's a big projector screen and it's really interesting to see what Shay Savage projects onto it because our hero, for example, Ed, when he first meets the heroine, he's like, she made small hiccuping sounds and her cheeks were wet. So homeboy doesn't understand tears, but then he's like, I was super ashamed about how little stuff I had. And it's like, so he doesn't understand crying, but he can easily wrap his head around capitalism. Yeah, or like a complex emotion of shame or pride, which are like super high up the chain in terms of like necessities of higher order thinking. Yeah, and also social thinking. Yeah, exactly. Social thinking. Like homeboy doesn't understand crying, but he understands fucking shame. Like mm, feels internally inconsistent. Also, what's weird to me about this is like I have so many thoughts just ricocheting around my brain. So we've got the breeder porn stuff. And then we've got the like alone stuff, which there's a series on the History Channel called Alone. And the whole point is 10 nature survivors are like trapped in the wilderness miles away from each other. The whole point of the game is that you have to outlast everyone in it, but you can't contact and have no ability to contact anybody else in the game. So you have no idea how well everybody else is doing. So it's like you're just alone. You have to come up with your own shelter. You have to feed yourself. You can't fall below a certain BMI. Otherwise, you get ejected from the game for safety reasons. And 
and like you live alone. And like this book felt like that too, except that you don't get $500,000 if you win. You just get to live another day. Yeah, I think survivalism is definitely having a moment right now. Maybe people feel nostalgia for the Cold War. Maybe. Yeah, I think survivalism is is part of it. And like the idea of being like totally self-sufficient as a problem solver is kind of dreamy considering like we have more technology than the first spaceship in our pockets at any given time. And so like the idea of like a real self-reliance I think might be part of the appeal and like a deeply simplified way of living. Sure. And like, you know, I will admit like one of the pleasures of reading this book at this time for me during the election and directly post-election is that it's so fucking monotonous. And it's like, today we woke up and we stoked the fire and we ate our dried meat and then we went to the lake and we bathed or made a clay pot and then we collected firewood and then we went back to the cave because it was night. The repetition of this book is just two shades north of boring. But they're so busy. They're so busy and it's so monotonous, but it's also like that monotony is like fucking soothing. It's a routine, right? Yeah. So like as a woman, if I'm given a time machine Mm -hmm. and I was like forced to use it, Mm -hmm. I think I would be more likely to go back to a prehistoric era than a time when women were totally subjugated because we don't know what the experience of women was like. That's true. We don't. The Minoan people, they actually think was a matriarchy and women were like the. So maybe I would go back then and just double check. Of course, I would stop in the 80s and have sex with James Spader. That seems right. I would kill Hitler. Mm. But then I would go back to the Minoan culture, check on that. And then if that didn't work out, I would go back to the prehistoric era. Because like, think about it. It's like for sure pre-race, unless you're a small human that can be eaten, apparently. There's a conflict with another human being, Homo sapien. That's also interesting. Like, he's not the same as her specially. Yep. That's just worth mentioning. It's just worth mentioning. It's not the same. Not the same. But I'm a little distracted now by Acknowledgement. He like specially can't be the same. Or maybe he can't. I know very little about anything, but prehistoric stuff is probably pretty far down. Never got big into dinosaurs because I'm a hot girl who does drugs and has sex. As somebody who is into dinosaurs and also <laughs> read the Clan of the Cane Bear series in its entirety. Like, yeah, there's actually quite a bit of historical evidence suggesting. Can you really use Clan of the Cave Bear as a historical record? No, you can't. I mean, Jean Auden was an anthropologist. That's how she got her start. But they know so little. In the 70s, they did. Well, in the 70s, they were very confident, but that doesn't mean they knew much. (laughs) They were very confident. But we actually know quite a bit more about our Neanderthal and Homo sapien ancestors than we did even 20 years ago. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that many tribes were matrilineal. There are a lot of suggestions uh, about stuff that they're finding. I mean, we're finding stuff about prehistory societies every day. Like there was a new discovery not even like three months ago in France. So in terms of art and in terms of like societal moves, obviously there are a huge amount of gaps. Like this is like one of those moments where like the Jurassic Park DNA guy shows up. He's like, we'll just fill these gaps with like frog blood. And like that's kind of what's happening here. But there's a ton of evidence. It honestly seems like we're learning a lot more, like we're getting a lot more evidence, but we have absolutely no way of applying it. And we've become less and less confident since the 70s, which is a good thing. But I think it's actually like we have less of a story and more of just um, like a Dadaist collage of what the world looked like. And from that, I think, creates an interesting opportunity for storytelling. Sure. But I think it also creates a world like if you decide to, and I think this is also true for Clan of the Cave Bear, if you decide to paint with this palette, it's going to say a lot more about you than it's going to say about the historical record. Yes. Like the assumptions that you would make, what you value, what you consider central. And so with that in mind, some things this book not to be too direct, <laughs> mm-hmm. find central, are this idea of like stuff collection. 
Mm-hmm. This idea of like female subjugation that is sexual in nature because we have the villain who shows up who's just going to like drag Beth. And even like our hero understands that he's like pretty progressive <laughs> for the prehistorical days because he's like, I want her to feel pleasure. I know I could just take her right now, but that's not how I want to do it cool guy ed you know yeah <laughs> he's very much like a beam me up soft boy award for good boys type of caveman totes one of those moments is like i really want her to want it and like how do i put a baby in her and make her want to have me put a baby in her it's like everything about the conversation was so off-putting but also since we're so ruthlessly shackled to ed's one first person perspective there's like no escape yeah god i wanted best perspective so bad at numerous points well if we got best perspective we would find out that she was 15 and we might feel weird about this book i wish i hadn't read the afterword because it was actually kind of enjoyable to think about like a 17 year old cro-magnon creature boning down on like a 25 or 30 year old researcher which is a hundred percent how i was envisioning beth like here is a person who fell through time she's like obviously got a phd like i had so many assumptions about Beth. Well, yeah. Let's talk about what you assumed about Beth because we don't get a lot of information about her. Literally none. Besides the fact that she has a matching bra and panty set. Not super believable. Oh, you you dressed up for your field trip to the Natural History Museum. Time travel. Yeah, like her bra and panties, which she was so... Actually, in hindsight, like I was so baffled by her obsession with like wearing her one pair of panties and her one bra. Would have been like, that's the first thing to go once I get back in time. Oh, no question. But the fact that she's 15, I'm like, that is absolutely what a 15-year-old would do, is like obsessively clean. But like my assumptions about Bat were that she was from beyond the 21st century that she was an adventurer and that some misadventure had gotten her stranded in this time period. And I, like you, assumed she was, you know, 25 or something. I was definitely envisioning somebody between the age of 25 and 30 who had a PhD and like was working on like particle physics or whatever and like got stuck. Yeah. And I was waiting for someone to show up and rescue her. And we do kind of get that. We do. It wasn't who I expected. I sort of expected it team and like maybe a romantic rival to show up but it was worse so it's her dad her dad shows up at this point i was still convinced up until the end of the book that she was a 23rd century time explorer and like whenever her father shows up and like leaves her and like gives her the rectangle that he's allowed to share resources with her for through I should say I was like oh this makes sense like maybe she got there on purpose and she's an anthropologist right Mm -hmm. was my assumption and Mm -hmm. I was like and she has to stay here and she you know has unexpectedly fallen in love but it's this like ethical gray area of living amongst and I was like that's really interesting. But it's actually that her dad... Okay, so just to spoil the whole like epilogue, she's 15. She's on a school field trip to the Natural History Museum. Her mom works there as an anthropologist, and she's a really controversial figure because she found and carbon dated a piece of steel, like a button from a pair of jeans all the way back to this period of time and people think that she planted it so she's very controversial her father works at the same museum interested in string theory physics she goes to his office because she's bored on her field trip because she spends so much time in the museum to see if he wants to have lunch with her in the cafeteria he's not there but he's left his green glowing time travel device on and she falls through it into the pit trap and eventually her father finds her she's had a baby with ed the baby is in bad condition And so her dad takes the baby back to the 20th century. I'm assuming because she's wearing Jordache jeans. That's 20th century. That's definitely 20th century. And takes the baby back and heals the baby in some kind of time stasis because the baby returns like a year later in their time, but is now like the same age as when she left, which I don't fully get. Maybe someone who knows string theory could explain that one to me. Never explained. Although... 
just like prehistoric anthropology, I feel like string theory is just kind of like the more we know, the less we know. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But when I was reading this book, I kept workshopping ancient alien jokes with my boyfriend. And I was like, is that Mm -hmm. anything? (laughs) Is this anything? My weirdest part was there were no aliens enslaving the humanoids, right? Like something like that. Um, But then we actually get an ancient alien slice when her father time travels back to give her the magic rectangle. And the only thing in the magic rectangle is fucking birth control. Yeah. He sends her birth control and then he sends her permanent birth control. That's what he sends in the magic rectangle. Not fucking penicillin. Not fucking flowers. He sends her flowers once. That's true. I think he sends her something when she's sick too. And he does heal her baby. So she ends up with twins and then she, I mean like look, here's something I thought was really interesting about this romance novel. You see the happily ever after all the way through to its death They die in each other's arms, which is actually a reference to a real couple in the fossil record that was discovered in a cave holding each other as they died. Which, once again, why would you think sex was about a biological imperative when you see two people who have chosen to die in each other's arms? Yeah, they're called the Romeo and Juliet cavemen. The lovers. I cried a little when I read it. I think it's important to acknowledge I cried a little. I was very invested. Talking about this book, this is one of those special things that happened happens in romance. It doesn't happen in horror. In horror, if it sounds ridiculous, oh, I don't know, Stephen King kind of disproves this. In genre fiction, it's one of those special things where if you describe it, right, if you lay out the plot, it sounds ridiculous. But if you read it and experience it, you end up crying when they die a beautiful death in each other's arms after raising a family that has gone on to start their own families and becoming a central, important part of their community. And that Beth has figured out how to use her Jordash button to start fire quickly like it's beautiful there's so many moments in this book that like you're right if you explained it i would hate it i would laugh or just think it's silly or like our listener and like buy it as a joke yeah and then like get like super duper invested and i think that's a hundred percent what happened to me where i was like this is so silly and then like the first time that i felt truly invested are the moments where like Ed's anxiety became my own or like the depiction of his anxiety was so visceral so physical because he doesn't have language he has like this insane internality which once you get on board with the fact that here's a person that doesn't have language but has like an insane internality that can like envision (laughs) has this like very articulate to you in the 20 yeah exactly you have to suspend disbelief to just start the book which is a unique way to situate your reader right in order to later exploit their feelings <laughs> totally and so like once you get over that there's like this scene where like he's been working so hard to get back pregnant it's <laughs> like didn't love that but the move about how excited he is about like the clan that they're gonna create and like the people that they're gonna find and then he like remembers that like women die in childbirth and he gets like really concerned yeah and then like he helps her deliver the placenta and like everything things okay and then they have this like very weird sort of like familial scene where he's like the baby cries all the time and it's so loud and bad talks to herself right because she has language and she needs to constantly be communicating and he's exhausted by that and then once she has children she starts teaching them to talk to her and when her dad visits she talks to him and that's exhausting for ed but you have to imagine like living in a world of complete silence like Mm -hmm. yes that would be so tiring and i also love the aspect that when bad gets really sick and is knocked unconscious after that attack from the other lone male figure. And also what's really interesting is that Ed feels a lot of grief and guilt whenever he fights off this guy and he cracks a rock on his skull to get him to leave Bat alone. And the guy goes into the forest and later in the summer, Ed goes into the forest and sees this cracked skull and like knows that he killed someone. Like he doesn't want Bat to know about it. And like that kind of thing is also a really interesting reframing of like certain ideas you've experienced about cavemen which is that they're like ruthless and like animalisticness which I think is really a way to justify our meat consumption oftentimes right like cows have a best friend you know we don't like to think about that stuff right so we're like oh it's animalistic cavemen killed everybody 
And so I thought that was an interesting way of thinking about and also says more about the writer and or how they understand the readership than it does about the actual historical record, which once again makes prehistoric romances utterly fascinating. Another facet to them. But after Bag can't speak for a long time, right, she comes back and he's like, I will never be irritated with her making those mouth noises again. And like also her like need for him to take on certain aspects of language to say he loves her, even though that word like love is just a sign, a signifier. It doesn't actually mean anything in and of itself. And we know that he loves her because we're in his perspective and we have that understanding. But he doesn't know what he's saying every time he says love, every time he says kiss. But it's so critical to her. And that spoke to something that I find like a really elegant metaphor for the way that like we all need to be loved in the way that we want to be loved. And sometimes that means the person we're with They don't understand it in the same way, right? Like love languages. And so they just have to posture, but it is like an expression of love in the way you want it in and of itself that they're just trying and that you're just trying. I just thought it was very elegant. Like there's so much good stuff in this book. The trying specifically, I thought was quite elegant and sophisticated, as you say. And like the other things like this book just like falls into romance tropes immediately. Like he's like, I want Beth to like me. And like, how do I get her to want to have me put a baby in her like the construction and syntax of that got really Mm -hmm. weird for me really quickly but like she's constantly brushing her hair and so she's like finding sticks all the time and bathing and he's watching her like use these sticks to like get the snarls out of her hair so he spends all this time like making her a comb and he's like really secretive about making it and like that was such an insane moment of like you know we talk on the podcast a lot one of the ways that we know the hero is a good person and like the person for our heroine is that he sees her and that's not just like I see you physically in front of me but like I see all the things that make you up and I want your life to be easier and like Ed makes her this beautiful comb he invents a comb he invents a comb he's never seen anything like it but he invents it he's never seen anything like it he's like what if I could get three sticks and a handle and invents a brush a comb for her hair it's incredible that really small act kind of gestures towards something that really snuck up on me about this book, which when I wanted to read Transcendence, I was like, got a dragon, a big club. I had all my like assumptions about like, what's a caveman romance going to be? It's going to be super like alpha and it's going to be like very weird. But actually like the stuff in this book is so quiet and human. Mm-hmm. Like her embarrassment about having to pee and poop in front of someone and his lack of embarrassment or when she gets her period and she just cries. And I spent all this time trying to like rationalize that. I was like, was she trying to get pregnant? But they didn't have sex. Was she pregnant before? And then she lost the baby. Is that something more significant? And then at some point I was like, no, like I've been trained to think that everything is a thing because of reading romance. But this is a book that it's just really overwhelming to have accidentally time traveled or purposefully time traveled. And now you get your period on top of it. Yeah, like literally five days in. And of course, that would just be the thing that makes you break down. Totally. And like, oh my God, Ed giving her like a Cro-Magnum C pad. I know. And like being like, this will keep the blood from making a mess. And although like, that's another thing. He understands pads, but he doesn't understand diapers. Oh God, I know. Like there's so many inconsistencies in this book. There's... Goofy stuff like that. But like you said something that really struck me because like I honestly, when I started reading this book, I'm like, this is such fucking bullshit. And like Clan of the Cave Bear is way better. And it's like, if I wanted that, I would have just read that. (laughs) But like, I think you're right to say it really sneaks up on you. And I think one of the things about the ruthlessness of being in Ed's perspective, listeners know I don't generally like first person. But like when you said that I expected this to be alpha, I think I did too. And the thing about Ed is he's such a fucking beta and it's like so nice I hate saying he's a beta because I think that has negative connotations. Sure. I think he's just like a caring person. He's a very caring person. He's so caring. And so anytime that like Beh doesn't want him to do something like and she 
pretty early on, like gets him to understand the no sound. So then he understands no, he stops, he like moves over and he's like, I don't know why she's mad at me. I don't know how to make it to stop. I'm going to try to get her to like stop being mad at me. And like his very strange, almost anxiety paranoia about her feelings is so intense. Well, it reminds me when we had that conversation with learning the tropes and they were talking about the Omega verse because sex isn't like physically the same. They have to communicate about it a lot more. And the thing about this book is because they cannot verbally communicate, this book really demonstrates all the ways that we share with other people how we're feeling and what we're thinking and how it is legible. Like this book is like the biggest, if anything, like biggest attack on those alpha novels where he's like taking her or whatever. It's like, no, like no has never meant yes. Mm -hmm. Literally never. If you're picking up on verbal cues, you're missing most of it. And like, this is such a big part of consent and it's such a legible part of consent. Everyone can understand this. And it didn't do it in a way of like, check it out. Even this caveman can understand it. It was simply like, here he is noticing all of the nuances of her physicality and understanding that as a way of communicating. And it does not come across as after school special. And it really comes across as like very sensual because, right, I don't know how many people are actually into BDSM, but everyone is into an attentive lover. Ed is definitely an attentive lover Mm -hmm. throughout this novel. And an attentive partner. Yeah, and willing to try things that are, like, outside of his, like, understanding of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, like, willing to try things that are outside of his, like, total experience of what it is to be a human creature. Mm-hmm. I think this book is doing some pretty high-level stuff, but, like, sometimes it trips itself when it's like, my mate is so unique, or, like, my mate is so silly. Those all come across <laughs> as punchlines, so I think that's what the back of the book meant by often hilarious, is that he'll randomly be like, she made a clay pot. My mate is weird. (laughs) I found this book so meditative. Like, it's so... Oh, that's so good. That's true. It's so quiet. And it felt like such a retreat into... And it was weird. As you know, Morgan, I love people verbalizing in romance. (laughs) That is 100% my tipple. So I didn't think I would love a book as much as I really did enjoy this book that had no verbalization. And like the verbalization that it did have was basically meaningless. As you say, like love, the word that Bess spends so much time trying to teach him doesn't have meaning for him. But that doesn't mean that I understand Ed to love her any less because I know that he does. And like that scene when she like is unconscious for three days and he's like, let's the fire go out. He's like, I'm just going to die next to her. He makes that decision foreshadowing. Yeah, seriously. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I can't even talk about the ending right now because I'm a little too tipsy. I'm genuinely worried I'll get verklempt. I'm enjoying, I do want to do a quick plug, a Tome Hazy Pale Ale from Half Acre. This is one of the best beers coming out of Chicago right now. I'd rank it right up there with the Eugene Porter from Revolution as one of my favorites. And of course, everything Mars Brewery has ever done. Now that we've gotten that out of the way. So this idea of sexuality, and I do want to get to the romance of this book, but I want to talk about sex because I think that's really important. Ed's understanding of sexuality reminded me of so many things. One thing it reminded me of is the nearness of history, even prehistory. So he talks about when he had a community. So one thing about Ed's backstory is that he was a part of a community, a pretty large village. They were forest-based. A lightning bolt struck a tree and burned his community and killed everyone but him, which is a really harrowing backstory because it is romance. We're talking about romance. (laughs) Of course it's harrowing. Yeah, his deep, dark tragedy is he's been alone for two years. I know. What a real and legitimate good stakes, first of all, for our hero being complicated. For sure. But the other thing is like this idea of a great hall. And I recently read this book called Grendel, which is, uh, I think it came out in the 70s or 80s. And it's from the perspective of Grendel the monster from Bale. Beowulf and he talks about going into a great hall and I was like that's right when Beowulf was written they had this social living situation where in the winter they all stayed together in a great hall so that they could share a fire and share each other's body warmth and share a hearth you know and that is where he saw most acts of of sex and also childbirth right he saw the entire cycle of, of human life with other people who weren't even his parents but also his parents he experienced his mother going through like 
like the loss of a baby and feeling desperately sad about that. You know, like I'm always shocked by how much time has gone by on this planet and overwhelmed by it. And that humanity is this small slice that still feels humongous. I think the more we talk about history on this podcast, the more we think about like how little has actually occurred in this little slice of an enormous pie. And that was a very humbling experience to read and think about, to make those connections where it's like, as recently as Beowulf, they were still living this lifestyle. Yeah. And that, you know, we're separated from Ed by 164,000 years, but like his mother is still grieving a dead child. And like, I think there was something really intense and like part of the move of like technology versus a kind of naturalism is... Ed begins to understand how dire the situation is with their daughter, La, really early. Like, hours, maybe even a full day before Beth is beginning to be as concerned as she gets. When life and death are truly the pillars that are defining your waking moments, and, like, you take out the other stuff. There was something so meditative, but also just, like, really impactful about him knowing his daughter was going to die and like being sad for him and like as a father but also like sad about how to comfort Beth and like there's this line where he's like I'm going to have to put her body in a deep hole so the animals don't get it and like then he has the reaction to it practical alignments that we find solace in in grief I mean that line was shattering for me shattering it's just so prescient how little are sophistication for these huge questions has evolved. Like we think we have some control over it, right? Because we have treatments for things that could kill us. But death is actually still just as random as it used to be. Affliction is just as random as it used to be. And therefore our way of managing that understanding of our own mortality and the mortality of those we love, we would consider it like the same. I know it's a book and I know it's just speculative. I think the things that it understands as human and central to our identity and constant are resonant. And oh my gosh, for example, the fact that like he doesn't have any kind of like toxic ideas of men's work. Like he does, he thinks like Beth will gather and she'll make baskets, but he doesn't have a hang up about like making the baskets, right? He doesn't have a hang up about like sharing the same work with Beth, nor does he have a hang up about being a father. And there's a scene where Beth's father comes back after bringing Law back and they have a son now whose name was also really cute, Law and Lee. And he gets so nervous and he decides like he's going to pick up his two kids and get them as far away from their grandfather and he just sits there holding his children and he spends so much of his time invested in their well-being equally the boy and the girl right and spending time with them he finds solace in certain like what we would identify as like masculine traits right like silence but he doesn't make a distinction between his son and his daughter in providing that because he's like I like when I get to spend time alone with law or I get to spend time alone with Lee because we don't speak they don't talk right they don't verbalize like they do with their mother. It's a way of like connecting that makes sense to him. And you know, his investment in like making a baby is seen through to its logical conclusion. Whereas I think today, a lot of times we think about childbearing as like you're only interested in the actual bearing of the child and then your investment ends if you're a man or a politician. And you know, that he sees it through. As a hero, he delivers in all of the quiet ways. He does. And I think it is. It's so quiet, especially the end. And I think like this book really functions in essentially like the first 75% and then like the last quarter. And I think the last quarter is where like Ed's emotional payoffs really come in. But like we couldn't have had those payoffs without all of the work of the first three quarters. The last part is they have their last kid and he has this conversation with himself where he's like, I know that I baby whatever this last one is. It's like Faye or something. And it's because he knows that it's going to be the last one because they go back to the cave she gets that permanent birth control she like shoots herself in the arm and like he has an understanding that there won't be any more babies because she bleeds for like a week or whatever so he like has this conversation with himself where he's like I carry him even though like I don't have to because like there's something so warm and special about like this last 
baby. Like there won't be any more. Here we go. Babying the babies. Here we go again. Double baby. We can't help it. We're like, this is great. Not only is it great, what's so weird about it is that I understood it on the page as a nostalgia for something that you will never have again. And like to have that in a caveman, to like have that kind of understanding where he's like, I know I shouldn't be holding my last one. They can walk and they should walk. They need to keep up with the crew. But like, if he wants to be held, I want to hold him. Because there won't be any other babies. Yeah. And like that tenderness. Oh, it's so tender. It's so tender. Not just for a child, but for the raising of a child, right? Which is often considered women's work. Nostalgia for the like hair of a small, vulnerable thing. Ugh. It's so good. It's also like a beautiful articulation of why babies are the way we are. It's because our parents, you know, are like, this is it. This is my last one. You know, sometimes they know that. Sometimes they don't. But I think they all know it. And there are so many moments like that where I was like really surprised and gratified and like humbled is probably too big a word. But like I was taken off my guard about Ed in so many ways. And it was funny too, because like, and I think you'll get a kick out of this. When I was first reading this, I'm like, all right, I'm going to picture Ed as Brendan Fraser from Encino Man. And like, that's going to be hot. God damn. God damn. How did you finish the book? I also thought he was super dreamy and airheads, which I know is like unpopular. So good. He's so hot. So like I was envisioning one of my like hottest, Give me a tan Brendan Fraser. I don't like him that much in The Mummy because he's not tan, but that George of the Jungle Encino Man char. And like, I think the reason why I then enjoyed this book so much, not only because I was envisioning Brendan Fraser, but like, I'm glad that you brought up George of the Jungle because like that kind of anti-alpha is what Ed is. And I think you're right to say that it's not beta because like that has all these like fucked up connotations, but it's anti-alpha. It's someone who cares about consideration. It's someone who's thinking about the feelings of others and wants to be building community. And what's cool about it is like this idea that what I appreciate about this writer is that they were able to shed all of the political correctness of our current moment. They were able to shed all of the technological imperatives and social imperatives of our current moment because he's just there by himself. And it is still like at our central core, we're all humans and we all want what's best for each other. And that makes this an incredibly humane book. Even the guilty feels whenever we see the villain other man come out of the woods and like try to grab that and clearly has poor intentions and Ed has to fight him off. Ed has this understanding of like, he's by himself. I'm by myself. We're different people, but Ed still has that humane outlook on this other person who's committing violence against him. And isn't that exactly what we need in 2020? Isn't that exactly what we need moving forward in 2021 is to look at someone and say, you're not so different from me, but you're a racist and hit him in the head with a rock. And then feel really bad when you discover their bones. It's over that they died. (laughs) That's what we need. No, don't hit people in the head with rocks. Do you feel bad when you discover their bones? Yeah, no, this book really surprised me. It really surprised me, and I understand why it was so beloved. Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy, and I'm here with my first cup of coffee every morning on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. I'm an award-winning author of fantasy and romantic fantasy, and I chat with you about what it's like to be a career author. I honestly share my daily challenges and triumphs in getting my novels written. I give insights into the business side of being a writer and reflect on leading a fulfilling and creative life. Sit down and have a cup of coffee with me. Sexiest part. Mm, Great question. Do you want me to start? Please. I'm going to call out this moment because I know how you feel about this particular sex act. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, know how everyone feels about this particular <laughs> sex act. The scene of 69ing. That's your sexiest part? Listen. Okay. It's not because I'm like, cool, 69 What's cool about 69ing is you both get it done in the same time. No, nothing like that. Nothing like that. I'm not saying 69ing because it's funny to put it in your email password, okay? Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty good that a romance novel, first of all, included it, and second of all, problem solved around how 
these people from two different eras would engage in the idea of 69ing. Especially because we discovered Beth was a virgin after their first sex. We're getting in the weirdest part. But that they try something. I think people really should try things. Like if you're with someone that you trust, like give it a shot. It might be your new favorite thing. I think sometimes sex can get encumbered by like a seriousness. And I think that's one of the reasons choking is so popular now because it seems like a serious thing you can do while experimenting, right? Whereas like toe sucking seems silly or 69ing seems silly, right? But I think like we should be sillier with each other because silliness is like vulnerability, but it's vulnerability in a positive framework. It's also a vulnerability that can like encompass laughter. And like, I don't love the sounds that Ed articulates. (laughs) I don't love that. Don't love it at all. Not great. Not cute. But like there are a couple of different times because like he only wants to have sex basically doggy style. That's his only framework for it. That's his only framework for it. And so when she begins to introduce all sorts of other kinds of sex. Missionary. Cowgirl. Reverse cowgirl. He gets excited and he's excited to like experience those things. And like he's like, how else can we do this? And it's like and it opens up this whole vista for him. Like there are plenty of scenes where like Beth doesn't want to have sex and so he's like I guess I'll just be sad next to you and then I'm still gonna cuddle you and I also liked that like she could reject him sexually he could pout for a few minutes and then they could still cuddle like I thought that was nice yeah but like the scenes where he's like on the ride of like sexual discovery I thought those were really really sexy his stupid noise aside yeah it's not that they do anything like wacky Mm -mm. it's not like they're exploring the Kama Sutra which isn't wacky but like Mm -hmm. complicated, a bit more athletic, let's say. In that, you really rediscover like, oh yeah, like missionary is actually nice. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily boring. It's just different from the others. And I think did a good job of articulating that, but it also does a great job of character development through a sex scene where we understand that part of the reason his relationship with Beth works the way it does is because he's an open person. He's not immediately fearful of things he doesn't understand. Yeah, totally. He's curious, which I think is, is great. I think so too. Weirdest part. God. Like, really, the whole afterward. I, like, also, like, her dad fucking showing up. I have to choose one. Yeah. I would say the dad in the box is my weirdest part. Like... I think that's a good point. Like, your 15-year-old disappears into your science experiment, and you finally figure out how to get it back, and the first time that you're able to... Like, and then it, it like, it just introduced too many questions for me, because, like, it felt like such a duesis machina to save their daughter, who then they don't have for a year. And it's like... And Ed, we're in Ed's perspective, so we think she's just gone. Right. And so then it's just like, why at that moment, other than to save the child, but, like, also, why wasn't there ever a discussion? about like trying to transport everyone into the 20th century because like that's also kind of what I expected this book to end as. Yeah. They were like Encino Man style. We're all going to have to live in like Pasadena, California now. Yeah. Like the dad is so weird. Well, and I think it gestures towards this really outmoded idea of like forsaking your family once you fall in love with someone and like creating a system of priorities that dis enfranchises your family like I understand being like you know what the person I'm with the person who I've chosen to be with their happiness is going to take precedent in certain situations for me right over my families but it does gesture towards this like classical idea of a marriage where the father like gives away the daughter and then she gives herself fully into this new family it was one of those moments where you see like the prejudices the assumptions of the text right Mm -hmm. about what's important in a romantic relationship part of it is the negation of self on the part of the woman yeah oh that's a good weirdest part it's the moments like that where I felt like a very conservative sort of underpinning that I didn't like because I think you're right to say like it does all this really interesting work around like Ed like building baskets and gathering and weaving and like that there is no gender distinction in work and I think like all of that stuff is like super interesting and then like there were moments and I like literally will never get over I want to put a baby in her I like literally can't get over it yeah but like the dad stuff especially 
especially was like yeah the ancient alien stuff and also the fact that like I mean the afterward kind of throws everything into a weird that's you know obviously it is interesting that as a reader until you get to that final piece you've done so much of the writing yourself right <laughs> so much of the character building and backstory creation you and I both did that in different ways it's true I know we've talked about the afterward right right she's 15 it's a whoopsie daisy it's the 80s which is weird but like this idea that there was a need for an afterward almost belies like a need to control a narrative that was really beautiful and moving and affecting without that piece of exposition Mm -hmm. and it feels like to speculate it feels like maybe an editor who was uncomfortable with ambiguity gave some feedback that's pure speculation but i would say to editors don't be uncomfortable with ambiguity I think is a lesson you can take away from this book. Of course, she does publish another book entirely from Elizabeth's perspective. Nobody wants to read Midnight Sun, okay? Edward's perspective is not that interesting. A lot of it is about Phoenix traffic patterns, it turns out. Like, it somehow makes him worse, right? For me, he wasn't great. If I had been younger when I read it, maybe, because he's so void. Yes. And boys are void. Yes. At a certain point, I'm on TikTok following people who did reviews whenever it came out. And the things he talked about were dumb as hell. I'm sure because he's dumb as hell. And like, that's the thing where it's like, this book is only revealing because we have a perspective that feels both alien and in its alienness is recognizable. And like, that's such a gift. What's interesting is I didn't identify with the heroine like I normally do. Nope. But I was just so moved by their love story because it was really a thing of like getting to know each other, getting to feel comfortable around each other. Nothing was rushed. Mm -hmm. Discovering what makes them feel good and, and what makes them happy. And like one of my favorite things is when Ed is like, I will never get sick of her talking again. And then eventually he's like, I'm sick of her talking. And it's like so like married with children, but beautiful. Yeah in a way that I wasn't expecting and is one of those romance novels in spite of its fantastic, fantastical premise almost that feels like one of those quiet, heartbeat braves type of stories where you can just understand that your very normal relationship is a love story and is worthy of celebration and is fascinating. Romance or a gnome, for me it's a woe, obviously. I struggled with this. I think if I had been in a different headspace, it may have been a nomance. But because of what I needed, this book really hit me, like I said earlier, like meditatively, like because of the election, I could disappear into a perspective that was basically super articulate and wordless and like just disappear into somebody who really wanted to care. And like that was so Mm. nice. Like I would Mm. recommend this to people. And if you liked Clan of the Cave Bear and Valley of the Horses, you would probably like this book. But also if you just want like a quiet, meditative, realistic depiction of the daily struggle and resolution and struggle and resolution of being in love, because it's not just about falling in love, it's about being in love. And like I said, it goes, the happily ever after is the whole shebang. It doesn't end with a wedding. It ends with two people dying in each other's arms, returning to where they originally fell in love to say goodbye. That's one thing that I like don't see enough of in romance. People dying together. People dying together for sure. But like one of the things that people say is like Jane Austen ends at a wedding and it's like that's not the most important part of a love story. Right. A wedding is an event for other people mostly. Exactly. I wish and I like I've talked about this on Twitter before but it's like I wish that we had more romances which were about like the work not the slog but the work all right any parting thoughts thank you to everyone who sent in comments about our two books for this month of november um you may have noticed we're just doing two of our regular episodes it's because we've got that dope jane Eyre series and we were feeling a little exhausted and this project more than anything is fun for us and we want to keep it fun for you and it's only fun for you if it's fun for us so we decided to only do a bonuses as necessary for the foreseeable future With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles! Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. 
That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frog podcast network discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast until next week Mwah.